Happy Easter. Hey, look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Oh, you can do better than that. You already offended the person at the end. Look at them and say, it's good to see you. Now look back at them and say, it's good to see me too, all right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is every single week I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall here in Buellton if you need some help. And in the Lompoc campus, don't worry, we're going to get it on the wall soon. We're so glad you're joining. If you are joining us at the Lompoc campus, we are so glad. Happy Easter. Uh, we're excited for the time that we're going to have together today. Maybe you didn't realize that there's a crowd of people right now live meeting in uh, Lompoc at our Lompoc campus. So if you are from Lompoc, we'd encourage you to check that out. 213 North J Street. We're so glad. I can't wait to hear all that God is doing at the Lompoc campus this morning. Hey, I'm so glad uh, that you're here. And if you need a Bible, uh, I want you to just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one to you. That's what happened at both campuses. Uh, one of the ushers will get one to you. I think we got one over here. And then if we run out, which I think will be okay, uh, you can download the Version Bible app, which is a free app on your smartphone. And I know you have one. And so uh, you, can, you can download that and uh, follow along. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John and we actually started the gospel of John a year ago on Easter, John 20. We started at the end and we're back to John 20 a year later. And if you need the Bible, you can start in the right and turn left. You'll find it much faster. You go two thirds of the way through, you'll find some guys' names, Matt, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in John um, 19, the end of 19, and then we're going to read in to 20. And you can say amen when you're there. John 19, starting in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, notice that John writes a specific person with a title so you can locate him. He's writing, he's not saying once upon a time. He's saying, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. He puts it there because that would be revolutionary. That would be shocking. He goes to the government governor of the region asks for a criminal's body and he gives him permission and he dates it, time stamps it, authority position, not once upon a time in a land far, far away. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So it came, he came, took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place 
where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was closed, close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Chapter 20 verse one says this now on the first day of the week, or in other words, then Sunday came. Will you say that with me? Then Sunday came now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, Mary, we're going to, we're going to look at that in just a bit, came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple to whom Jesus loved. He says the other disciple, but Jesus loved him most. You ever met that, uh, that sibling who thinks mom and dad love them the most? This is John. And so he secretly signs his name. He's like, John wasn't there, but there was a disciple whom Jesus loved, right? And somehow he has eyewitness account of all of this and notice uh, how he tells the story. Now remember, John is a young man when this is taking place, a older man reflecting on the story. And this is how he remembers it. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's like, I'm just going to slip that into the Bible, okay? Uh, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Notice the the dynamics of the generational dynamics, the zeal and youthfulness of John, who wants to know to his predecessors, listen, I'm faster and stronger, and I can get there first. But then somehow he chickens out on looking in the tomb right? He gets there, he leans in, but doesn't go in. And it takes Peter to come with courage. Aren't you thankful that we need older and seasoned men? And somebody say amen to that, right? Just trying try to dodge any bullets uh, there. That we need men and women older and younger working together. Aren't you thankful for a multi-generational church that you look around and you don't see just the gray hairs and the no hairs, but you see so many different faces because life is better together. Amen. Oh, you can do better than that. Life is better together. Amen. And so the zeal of John and the courage of Peter, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloth lying there, a face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself, folded up and put in a place by itself. There wasn't chaos. There, there wasn't a, a, a moment of rushing out. Something has been prepared and left there for people to see folded up by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also he wants to put that back in there. Remember, I got there first, also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, 
she stooped to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lay, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She said, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I've not ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Will you pray with me? Gracious heavenly father, we love you. We thank you that on this resurrection day, the first day of the week, we know that we have an opportunity today to remember, to reflect, to be encouraged, challenged, and exhorted, and let it propel us forward. Thank you for all that you've done already in this service and the stirring of hearts. Let us lean in. Let us look for you. I pray that you would prepare our hearts, open our minds. Help me, Lord Jesus, uh, not to lean into my giftings or my abilities or personality, but Jesus, I pray that you speak through me in such a way that they hear your voice and they know you and they see you for who you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. This was the day that everything changed. This is the day that the world actually changed. The de that day changed everything from then forward. It's never been the same. And you may say, uh, Pastor Sam, you can't possibly believe that. That's a Christian idea. But I want to persuade you that that particular day when Sunday came, that particular Sunday, it turned the world upside down and things have not been the same since. Everything changed from that day forward. See, it was at the cross, Jesus did the work. He did the work that changed everything. What did he do Well, Philippians says this, that Christ came, God became a man. He lived a selfless, obedient life unto death, death on a cross. And because of that, God the Father has given Jesus a name which is above every other name. And yet the Bible thousands of years ago predicted that Jesus would be the most famous person in human history. If you were to Google you and Google Jesus, there's more evidence that Jesus existed than you exist, friend. He wins out every single time. But how would the Bible know that? And why would he go on to become the most famous person in human history? history. What did he actually do? Well, the Bible tells me that he came and lived in my place. He lived a life I could not and I ought to, and he died the death that I should, and he paid the debt that I owed to God because of my sin. And the Bible tells me that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God from the least of us 
all around to the greatest among us, the most moral, to those who are outside of the bounds of what they ought to do. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet Jesus comes and lives this life and he pays my debt. And you go, yeah, that, that's great, but how do you know that? How do you know this all talk of sin and, and debt to God and being forgiven? How do you know that is true? Because I believe that Sunday came, friends. Why can I believe in the work of the cross? Why can I trust his forgiveness for my sin and the life that he offers, offers me? Because Jesus came and lived and rose from the grave. And listen, friends, if you see a dead man walking, it will fundamentally change you, <laughs> right? And this is the reality of the scriptures that, that Jesus changes everything. And I can trust who he, he is because of what he's actually done. And so the question for me that I have to wrestle with is the Bible actually true when it claims that Jesus rose from the dead? And maybe there's skeptics who go, man, this Easter thing, maybe this is a metaphor. Maybe, maybe this is symbolism. Well, you'll find metaphor and symbolism in the Bible. But when the biblical authors write the gospels, they are not writing allegory or, 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 or metaphor or symbolism. They are writing history and they'll leave markers for us. Luke sets out a doctor. He writes to his friend. He says, dear Theophilus, I've wrote an accurate account that you can be confident in what you've been taught is true. And so here's the reality. You have to wrestle with the question of did Christ actually rise from the dead? I had someone ask me, a good friend of mine, he said, you don't, I mean, you actually believe that the Bible is true and literal? And it's like in parts, yes. In other parts, there's symbols pointing to other things. But this particular account, yes, I actually believe in the resurrection because here's the reality, friends. Christianity is not merely ideology or philosophy. It's not mere theology, what you think about God. Christianity is an event called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And someone say amen to that. That was the day changed. And Paul actually writes these words. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then all of your doing, all of your striving, all of your morality, all of your philosophy and theology around the person of Jesus, all of that is in vain if Christ has not been raised. And 1 Corinthians 15 lays out evidence in order to give a burden of proof that moves beyond doubt that you can trust that Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and he rose again. And the person who wrote this, Paul, was once a persecutor of Christians. His, his name that he would go by was Saul, and that was the Hebrew form of his name. But when he started a ministry to the Gentiles, which it, before this would have no association with, he would begin to take on the form, uh, the Greek form of his name, Paul. And Paul was a murderer of Christians, and then he would go on to be a martyr for the person of Christ. Why? Because he encountered the risen Lord. He was actually on his way to snuff out the name of Jesus. He was going city and household. Anyone who proclaimed the name of Jesus, he was going to cancel them. This is cancel culture like you've never seen before, friend. He's censoring out the name of Jesus. 
He wants to blot it out from the history books. And yet he will go on to say, Jesus has a name above every other name. And he'll say that if Christ has not been raised, then all of this in vain. What was the change, Pastor Sam? He actually encountered the risen Lord. And this is evidence of the resurrection. What do you mean evidence? He could say anything, but you have discovered it, uh, uh, much over the past couple of years. And if you know this from the past couple of years is that people on the extremes don't change their minds, do they, friends? Someone say, oh no. Right? And Paul is not one, he's not one toting the line. He's not in the middle. He's not undecided. He's going to persecute Christians and he's going from house to house to make sure that he puts an end to their lives. That's an extreme friend. And then on a road to Damascus, the risen Lord appears to him because see an object in motion has a tendency to stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. And Jesus is the most powerful thing, the most powerful person in human history. And his life changes the worst of us. And Paul would write that Christ has been raised. And this is why we can be confident in the cross. This is why Good Friday is good Friday. If the resurrection does not happen, then that day is a terrible day. But because of the resurrection, now it is a beautifully tragic, victorious day. That's why we can call it good because Christ has risen. He is risen indeed. People saw that Christ had appeared and they would actually begin the rumors. Like Pastor Rick was telling you, what would happen is the rumors of the resurrection was going around and you would see someone in the marketplace. You would see someone in the streets and you would wonder had they heard because it's controversial. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not ready to go public. But man, I wanna know because I'm starting to believe. I'm starting to wonder. I'm starting to test. And someone would walk by you and they would say, he is risen. They'd say, what'd you say? He is risen. Maybe that's why they had to say it three times. And then they would say, yeah, yeah, he is risen indeed. And all of a sudden, the ripple effect, the rumors, and the reality. And that reality turned the world upside down. And now a, uh, the son of a carpenter who had never traveled more than 150 miles from his home, he didn't have Twitter and an Etsy page, but he's the most famous person in human history. And how does that happen? Unless he called his own shot, he was crucified, buried, and rose on that Sunday morning. And he set everything, start of the work week, start of everything going forward. He changed the religious day for the known world. Saturday was that day and it changed. See, maybe you go, man, I, I still don't know. These are, these are all kind of fairy tale sounding things, Pastor Sam. I mean, you don't really believe all the stuff in the Bible. Well, let me tell you, friend, if I can convince you, if, if I can convince begin to persuade you that a man raised from the dead and he predicted it and he actually fulfilled prophecies that were told hundreds of years before and that beyond a shadow of a doubt he actually rose from the dead than the other stuff in the bible that's a piece of cake to believe friend so i want to give you some evidence 
I want to lay some breadcrumbs before you. I want to set you out on a journey, maybe prepare the appetizer for you because here's the reality, and this is what I'm thankful for, And but my kids are almost out of that age. An appetizer for a child is a full meal, praise God. And yet for an adult, an appetizer simply does what it's supposed to. It rouses your appetite. And so here's what I want to do before you in this sermon because I have a limited amount of time and I don't think I can say my name in 20 minutes. And that's a joke. And... Uh, didn't go over in either service. Uh, Lompoc, they loved it. And uh, like, yeah, he's long-winded. And, uh, and yet, here, here's what I'll lay before you is I wanna prepare an appetizer that you may be stirred to hunger and it may be propel you forward. There's a lot of, uh, of research that's out there. People like Sean McDowell and Josh McDowell have wrote books like More Than a Carpenter or, and there's books like Case for Christ. Some of the most uh, successful lawyers in human history have set out to disprove the resurrection, to look at the evidence because somebody may say, well, hasn't science disproved, I mean, the, the idea that there was actually a resurrection? Well, you're not being intellectually honest, friend, if you're talking about science. Science proves what is repeatable over and over. And then science, have you noticed, changes sometimes. <laughs> and so you don't want science to be the thing that, that gives you a verdict of guilty or innocent. That's not how we determine historical facts. We begin to weigh evidence and we begin to make a case. That's how. Because if you're in a court of law fighting for your life because you're standing trial uh, and and this could end up costing you everything and someone came and said, we're going to do away with a jury of your peers. We have this new scientific uh, method that's going to determine whether you're innocent or guilty. Trust the system. Would you trust? You'd say, no, man, let me, let me tell you the story. Let, let's look at all the facts. Let's put it together. Because when you're talking about historical facts, you are building a case and a burden of proof with evidence. That's how we think about what's happened in the past. And so I want to try to lay before you a few things that happened before the resurrection and after the resurrection. And you can, you can do the work. I want this to propel you forward. I want you to go. If you're here today and you go, man, I, I got some doubts and, and my, my, my family drugged me here. Well, that's the best drug problem you've ever had, friend. All right. I love when LP's on the front row. And yet, if you say, man, I don't know, I have some questions. Well, do the work, my friend. Be a man, man up and seek truth and begin to work for yourself. Because here's the reality. If you're hungry for truth, when you're a child and you're hungry, you look for someone to feed you. But when you're an adult, you look for something to eat. And I'm convinced I want to stir you to hunger because I think if you're hungry, you'll go hunting and hunting people will grow up. Amen. Because the reality is, is a baby nursing is cute. A grown man is disturbing friends, right? Just put that 
out there. So you got some work to do, but let me leave you some breadcrumbs that you can begin to investigate and look for truth. One of the first and one of the strongest evidence that we have that happened before, as we read in 19. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, he gives a name, he gives a title, a position, someone we could look up in history. And yet it says that strategically so that you would have evidence and be able to investigate. It's a breadcrumb. Why is that important? Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, <coughs> secretly in fear of the Jews, meaning he was a back row follower of Christ. Where's my back row at? Amen. Right, I'd be back there with you, friends, right? And yet, don't discourage people who are at different places. Here's the reality. And when push comes to shove, all the disciples went and ran and hid. They were afraid of Pilate, maybe they're next. And Joseph of Arimathea, who was secretly a follower of Christ. Notice maybe that was John throwing a little shade because he was the only one brave enough to actually go to Pilate and ask for his body. Now, why is that important? Because Joseph of Arimathea, when you put an of somewhere, hey, they come from something and somewhere. What it means is he's a man of status and resource. Notice that him and Nicodemus are both wealthy men who come together with 75 pounds of essential oils, right? And man, where are you going to get that, right? And someone's like, I, have, I would like to talk to you about doTERRA. And... Um, <clears throat> They're just right there for the taking and I can't stop myself. They bring 75 pounds of oils and spices, 75 pounds, and they take care of this body. And they take a criminal, which would normally be discarded to the dump, and they lay him in a rich man's tomb, fulfilling a prophecy written 300 years before it. All of a sudden you read this, you go, that's impossible. When we read that they pierced his side to confirm his death because blood and water flowed, a confirmation of death rather than breaking the legs of Jesus like they did the two on each of his side to speed up the process of death. They confirmed his death and not a single bone was broken, fulfilling a prophecy told hundreds of years before. That's two fulfillments. There are over 300 of those prophecies in a book written over the course of a thousand years. A mathematician did the statistics on how one man would fulfill only five of these predictions, that one man's life could point to all of these things and fulfill these things. Listen, your calculator is not big enough to look at the chance of 150,000 to the like 400 uh, uh, X power or whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's why they're mathematicians and I'm doing this, right? <laughs> and so yet, the statistics of him fulfilling five of these, these pr prophecies are so astronomical, but yet the person of Jesus fulfilled over 300 of these. And if he doesn't get one of them, then all of the rest of them are null and void. And then after the resurrection, 
after the resurrection, it says in verse 20, it says, now on the first day of the week, Mary came to the tomb. I know this will be controversial, but Mary is a woman, okay? Just wanna throw that out there, all right? And we know she's a woman, she's named Mary. And here is the reality of them saying this. Now you may conclude that all of these authors made this story up. Yeah, it's in there and we can trust it. That's what they wrote, but they're writing a fairy tale. It probably did not happen and they made this up. Here's what you have to wrestle with. In this particular culture, a woman was not credible in a court of law. One writing, Jewish writing outside of the Torah, outside of the Old Testament, one Jewish writing would say it would be better to burn the law than to teach it to a woman. And yet, if you're trying to change an entire culture, if you're trying to change and convince people of your lie, you would not write, then Mary came to the tomb unless it was actually true. And yet all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all write that women showed up to the tomb first. If you were writing once upon a time in a land far, far away, and you were telling a fairy tale that you wanted people to trust and believe, you would not write that women got there first. But because they were, and Christ used them as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, it has changed the world for women from that day forward. And all the men in here should say, amen. That was weak. All the men in here should say, amen, right? Here's really whatever you think about Christianity and, and maybe you think it's a book that, that, uh, that undermines women and puts them in their place. You've never read the Bible, friend. That's not. Other religions do that. Other places in this world do that. But because of that time, when you say the world's changed, the world has changed because now men and women sit together in this setting. We see each other as equal value and worthy and image bearers of God. And you're not outside while the men in here are talking shop and we'll explain it to you later. That's not what's happening. But now from that day forward, women have been put to a place of prominence. Their voices are valuable. And that should tell you men, that when the ladies in your life come to you and say they saw a dead man walking, you should trust them the first time. And yet all the gospels tell a little bit of a different version of who got there first or who saw first. But here's, here's what they all say. The women got there first. And if you've ever told a story, you go, well, that doesn't make sense. There's discrepancies in the story of the timing. It's like, have you ever tried to tell the same story at your family reunion? Everybody's got different sides of that story, amen? Every time Joe and I try to tell a story, we're always arguing about who got there first, right? And yet we see things different. That doesn't take away from the validity. It actually points to the validity. What investigators would tell you is when people begin to try to get their story straight and dialed, it's probably not a true story when they're saying verbatim. But all of the facts, all in their perspective are the same, that they went to the tomb and the tomb was empty. Number two is that the tomb was actually in Jerusalem. 
This is strong evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was crucified in front of the entire city. City. It's confirmed. Josephus, a writer who was a Jewish man writing for the Roman Empire, wrote this down. There was no question of whether or not Jesus was killed under Pontius Pilate, under the Roman government, and then his followers believed that they saw him raised from the dead. It is confirmed that he was crucified and he was put into a tomb and he was put into a tomb in Jerusalem. And yet you could find Joseph of Arimathea and you could find his tomb and what you will not find is a body, an empty tomb. The empty tomb is evidence of the resurrection because here was the conspiracy theory that needed some fact checking going forward was the conspiracy theory was that the apostles came in the night and stole the body of Jesus. Now, why would they put that out there if they had a body? Why would they put that out there if the tomb wasn't empty? The Pharisees actually confirm that the tomb was empty and all they would have to do is show a body and they would be able to disprove all of this and everything is in vain. But they put forward this lie that said the apostles stole. Now, why would they do that? If they had the body and they knew where his body was, why would they put out that lie? That would be like coming to your teacher and saying, my dog ate my homework, but having your homework. It's like saying you have the body, but there's an empty tomb. Why would you lie if you weren't trying to cover up something? What they were trying to cover up was that the tomb was actually empty. Now, how is it empty? There were guards in front of it and there was a seal on the door and it was a sign to anyone who messed with that tomb that they would have to deal with Rome. And there were Roman guards out in front of them and yet what the, the, the lie that was propagated was that fishermen came and overthrew Marines. And not only just fishermen, fishermen that ran and cowered on Friday, who didn't do anything on Friday, ran and hid, and somehow they were emboldened. And somehow, although they were hidden and the ladies were the only ones courageous enough to even go to his tomb, meaning they didn't want to be seen there because they didn't want trouble because Peter on Friday denied that he even knew Christ. So anyone with any intellectual honesty knows that the burden of proof to suggest that fishermen overthrew Marines and then rolled the stone away, stole his body and no one saw that, there are no eyewitnesses of them carrying a body in this city where people are packed in at the Passover. People are sleeping in living rooms. People are sleeping outside in tents. Everyone has come to Jerusalem for the Passover and yet no one after this public crucifixion, the mob was there and no one saw anyone taking a body and hiding it. So, Intellectual honesty would suggest that the tomb was empty and the apostles did not steal the body, then he must have raised from the dead. There's evidence after evidence, like more than 500 people were eyewitnesses 
of the resurrection. 500 people testified that they saw the risen Lord. Not a single eyewitness for them removing his body, but more than 500 people came forward in a time that it would be criminal to say that you were following the crucified king of the Jews and 500 people came forward and said, I saw what I saw. He rose from the dead. He is risen indeed. And Paul names them in 1 Corinthians 15. He says he came to this one and that one. First to, 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 to the ladies and then to Peter and then to John and then to James. He names them and he says over and over, and you can go many who are still alive today. He says, go and find out, just like I told you, go find out for yourself. Don't take my word for it, investigate it. Go talk to someone. He is risen indeed. And then one of the most strongest evidence of the resurrection is how the family and the disciples of Jesus responded to the reality of the resurrection. They went from being cowards to courageous preachers of good news and it would cost them their lives. Man, if they stole the body and they hid it, do you think that they would go to their death for a lie? And yet, They believed they saw the risen Lord and it emboldened them and empowered them so much that all of them would become martyrs for the person of Jesus. And then there's James, the half-brother of Jesus. Any of you got a boneheaded brother? Don't look at him. Don't look at him. James, the, the brother of Jesus, at one time mocked Jesus. We read it in John he, he mocked him openly. He was not a close follower. But after the resurrection, we would record that James would go on to lead the church and he would go to his death believing that his brother was God and he rose from the dead. How many of your brothers could convince you that he was God and rose from the dead? right? You remember what that was like, right? You're in trouble. Mom and dad come in and you're getting your story straight. The stuff's going to hit the fan. And you say, listen, you tell me who did it or things are going to go real bad for you real quick, boy. Right? That doesn't really happen at my house. And all of a sudden it's, he did it, right? She did it. One uh, theologian wrote that it was Watergate that convinced him of the resurrection because here are 11 men that if they were keeping a secret, kept it to their death, told their families. Their families were martyred. And with Watergate, seven men couldn't keep their mouth shut for just a couple days. And yet, the reality that these men and women saw what they saw and it fundamentally changed them is evidence of the resurrection. The question is why? Why did Christ die? Why did, why did he die? What did he come to do? He came to put death to death because here's the reality. This is the one equal thing. This is the, the equality thing that we all share is we will all face death. And the question is, how do I deal with that? And yet Christ came and died so we could live. That doesn't make sense to fulfill something and do something and take on something in order for someone else to live. 
Well, I don't know if you've seen these things around. Uh, they're selling like hotcakes. Liquid death. What a name for a sparkling water, right? You're like, I think Sam just cracked open a beer on stage. What did he do, right? This is water, friends. And yet the marketing's incredible. I don't know if you've seen these. You can get uh, two for $3 at El Rancho. I'm not sponsored, but I'd like to be, right? And yet... On, on this water, it says liquid death, murder your thirst. <laughs> All you kooky charismatics are like, why has he got the devil's can on stage? It's for an illustration, friend, okay? All right. <clears throat> but here's, here's, here's what's amazing about what they're onto that they don't even realize. What they're stumbling onto that the whole earth has been telling us every time you eat a meal, even... For you vegans, those plants were alive, friend. <laughs> right? And yet, what the world has been telling us is that death brings life. Death brings life. Something has to fill you for you to live. Jordan Peterson was recently on the Joe Rogan experience and he said the Bible is the pre-manifestation of truth. It's how we judge everything else. It's actually what gives us truth. And yet the Bible is actually the first book ever written. I mean, think about that. In the sovereignty of God, there were no books before the Bible. They, they invented the printing press in order to print the Bible. Now we have it in our hands. And here's what it's telling me. As Jesus says, I thirst at the cross and he takes this sour vinegar they put to his lips and he takes it. And then he says, it is finished. And he breathes his last breath and he gives up his spirit, fulfilling the scriptures. He dies in order to fill the thirst that you and I have. Here's the reality of life. We all long for something more. It's as if our soul is thirsty. Jesus says, all who who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I'll fill them. He's living water. Here's the reality of the human experience. We're all looking for more. We're all thirsty. We're all needing a drink. The Bible says that he's hidden eternity in our hearts that we know there's more meaning there's more something more and here's the reality of the scriptures here's what they're on to that they don't even realize that it's his death that will fill our lives why because he put death to death so he could murder the thirst of humanity in your life so that he could trade his life for yours this is the resurrection this is the idea this is the idea I know I gave you the nod, Joe, but just wait just a second. Yeah, this is the idea. He takes the broken, the messed up, the stumbled into, and he makes something new out of it. That's the whole idea that we celebrate. More than the idea, it's reality. The resurrection is an offering of a new life to be made brand New. It was uh, when Sarah and I first got married, four score and about 11 years ago. And uh, I was a youth pastor in Kentucky. And for those of you who don't, didn't realize that already, I'm not from around here. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> and, and I'm from Kentucky and I, I was a youth pastor and youth pastors are broke. So tip your youth pastor. And 
And so I had this part-time job uh, on this construction company. And at the time they had this contract to, to pour new sidewalks in Radcliffe, Kentucky, which is just right outside of, of Fort Knox, much like a city like Lompoc. And so we were, we were there laying sidewalks. And on this particular day, and the irony of me being there is I know nothing about con- construction or concrete. They have names for guys like me on construction crews. They're called gophers. Okay, go for this, go for that half the time. I don't know what you want me to go for, right? And, and yet that's my job. So on this particular day, they had me standing in traffic. I was that guy and, and dodging traffic and hey, go around. And we did this for 15 hours that day as they, they laid one long stretch of concrete. And on this particular day, it was 115 degree heat index. If you ever spend any time in the South, it is hot and it's humid. It's not the heat, it's the humidity. I feel like we need to wear wetsuits under our clothes. It's gross, right? You just get hot and sweaty and you need to take a shower all the time, all right? And, and yet that's what it's like. It's hot, it's humid. We're standing there and I've been doing nothing while all these guys have been laying this sidewalk. And here's the reality about where we were at in Kentucky. If you don't like the weather in Kentucky, wait five minutes because it's gonna change. So it goes from hot and humid and that humidity is gonna cause it now to rain and storm clouds are coming over the bend. And my boss is looking at me and I'm the gopher and he says, hey gopher, yeah Doug. And he says, we gotta go get a tarp to to cover the sidewalk because the rain is about to destroy all the work that we did today. And so I'm, I'm stoked, man. I've been on the bench all day. The coach is calling me up. The backup, the starting quarterback got hurt. I'm the back up, but I feel like I forgot to read the playbook, you know? And, and so I, I, I get in the truck with him, the lumber yard's about a block away, and, and I jump in his little truck, and, and we go to the lumber yard. Now it's just raining cats and dogs. Whatever that means, I have no idea, but I know you in California, you have no idea what that means. And yet it is, it is raining so hard, and we go about a block down, and we get the tarp in the rain, and we throw it in the back of the truck, and I get into the passenger side seat, and we start back towards where they're working. And the whole way I'm rehearsing the playbook, I'm like, okay, get out of the truck, get the tarp and put it over the sidewalk. I know that seems like, yeah, duh, but I, I want to be prepared. And, and so I, I just keep reciting, get out of the truck, get the tarp, put it on the sidewalk, get out of the truck, get the tarp over the sidewalk. It's game time. It's raining. I jump out of the truck and I jump into a puddle of water that's up to my ankles and I jump out of the water and onto the sidewalk. (laughs) And now five minutes is up and it stopped raining. (laughs) And I'm standing there looking at my food. I, I, I want to, I want to save the, the sidewalk, the wet concrete from, uh, from the rain. And I can't save it from my boot. That's now galloped through the sidewalk. And, and all of a sudden these guys are coming up the city engineer, the public works director comes up and he looks and he's like, who's the idiot who jumped in the concrete? to go home. We're already broke. I'm going to have to go home to my beautiful young wife and say, today, baby, I lost my job. And she's going to be like, why? And I'll be like, because you married an idiot. And I mean, I'm looking at it. And these guys are two guys over here. I mean, some people call them ruffians. I'm just telling you, they're straight rednecks, man. And, and they're looking at me going, hey, uh, what are you doing, man? Why would you do that? And I go, 
It's my natural reaction. It was your natural reaction to jump in wet concrete. Like, dude, this guy's done, right? Can I tell you, man, that, that is a terrible day. Man, when things go wrong like that, you know what that's like. That moment hangs around, friend. And, and, and I hate to disagree with the half-brother of Jesus, James. He writes in James, life is a mist. It's here and it's gone. But can I, can I just say that those moments when, when good times turn to bad times, life feels less like a mist and more like a fog. Just kind of hangs around, much like the last couple of years. Stuff happens and you feel like, were you ever gonna get out of this? <clears throat> is this? Is this permanent? I mean, by definition, it's concrete. Listen, friends, this isn't the worst thing I've ever done. And I still jump in concrete metaphorically on a regular basis. I trip, stumble, and fall, and I look back, and here's what the enemy will do for you, friend. He'll say, listen, you'll never live out of that mistake. That mistake, that moment will define you. It's concrete. He'll convince you, this has ruined you. There's no way forward. Man, I felt like it that day. And here's the thing, man, I don't even have the tools to fix it. I'm the gopher. If I tried to fix it, if I tried to get in the clay, so to speak, get in the concrete, you ever try to do that? Try to fix a mistake, you make it worse. Here's the reality, you can't fix you, friend, but that's good news. Because I would have messed it up even more. I didn't, I didn't know what to do, and, and yet my saving grace, this man named Hido that I could see right through those ruffians, and Heido looked at me and he said, I got it. I can fix it. You know what he did? He went over. I didn't even know you could do this. He floated concrete. Flo oh, the constraint. Well, yeah, it's like, well, concrete doesn't float, bro. <laughs> we should be precise in our speech, right? Yet he floated it. He started moving it around. He had this, this thing that he just moved. And all of a sudden, what I thought was permanent, what I thought couldn't be fixed, that people would be able to stand, you idiot. I could see your tracks. I could see the markers. People are gonna be able to trace your steps back to this moment, the moment you ruined everything. And yet, Christ comes in and he takes what you thought couldn't be fixed like a man named Saul killing Christians. He takes his life and he changes it and flips it up. Listen, I don't care what you've done. Seeking to murder Christians, I guarantee most likely has not been your life. And yet, he, this guy would go to write 16 books of the Bible to be one of the most prolific Greek writers in all of antiquity. He would write books that universities, whether they were believers or not, would have to study them because they're so prolific. And yet it would be because Christ met him on a road, took his mess. He changed Paul's life. He changed my life. He can change your life. That's the resurrection. If anyone be in Christ, the old has passed away and behold, 
all things are new. He died to put to death all the things that you needed put to death so you can do all the things that bring you life. You realize that in your life, there are things that you have to say no to in order to say yes to other things. You, in other words, have to kill one thing in order for something else to live. That is the gospel. I am crucified with Christ daily. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. But here's the reality. What you're putting to death is mere existence and the mundane life that comes from a meaningless life. But what he offers is a life full of purpose and meaning. And he'll take the pain, the pain that you thought was permanent because it's concrete. He'll take the pain and he'll use it for purpose. Many of you have stories. You're not to be ashamed of that story. You should wear it proudly saying, look what the Lord has done. He set me free. The curse of sin is broken. You go, what's this new life like? I mean, because I meet all these Christians and they're not perfect. Yeah. Have you met the pastor? Right, listen, friend, uh, if I'm the best Christian in this room, we're all in trouble. Over here's the reality, we're all moving along. This new life is exactly what new life is like. Many of you have new babies around. And there's expectations for men and for babies. You ever notice that babies can't walk? And yet, what do we do in the church? Someone comes to Christ, gets baptized, says a prayer, and you expect them to run headlong, but babies don't walk. Sometimes they just need people to carry them along. Sometimes they need people moving them along day by day. Some walking, some crawling, some running, and some of us running, trip, stumble, and fall head first. It's every single day getting stronger. Yesterday I was on my way to the gym and my daughter's in this like why stage. You have any of those? My boys were never like that because guys usually don't care, right? <laughs> I would be like, I'm going to the gym. They're like, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> I tell my daughter like, she's like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to the gym. She's like, why? I was like, so I can get big and strong. She's like, why? And I was like, so I can pick you up to the sky she was like, okay. <laughs> stop, stop. I went to the gym. I came back and about an hour later and, and her, her bedroom's on the way to, to ours. It's on the right and ours is on the left. And I'm heading to the shower and, and, and I see her in her room and I go, hey, Riley. And she goes, daddy, you strong? Just as a daddy, you strong? I go, I'm getting there, baby. See, that's how the life of Christ is. For many of you, you're hearing a story, you're, you're being stirred. Can I just tell you that you're not gonna run after today and this isn't a destination, this is the starting point. Every single day, you can get stronger. Every single day, you can come back week after week celebrating the resurrection, this new life. Every single day, you need somebody alongside of you, carrying you along, encouraging you. You need to build your faith, exercise by beholding and hearing and reminding, you go, am I there yet? Or you'll never quite be there yet. Are you stronger? 
I'm getting there, baby. I'm getting there. Is your faith growing? I'm getting there. Are you over that thing? Because here's the reality. Christianity is not about staying out of the dark. Christianity isn't about trying to get rid of your sin problem, your addiction problem. Here's what Christianity is, running towards the light every day, every step, one more inch forward. And what you realize is when you stand in the light of who he is, the world grows strangely dim. Because Sunday came, your life can change. Will you bow your heads with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I thank you for every person under the sound of my voice. Maybe they're saying, you know what? I had some doubts, but some of those doubts are removing. I, I feel one step closer. Well, friend, maybe you're like Joseph of Arimathea. You felt like a back row follower. I'm praying that when the time comes, your story will link up with the story of Jesus and you'll cre- courageously follow after him. So if that's you today with every head bowed, with every eye closed, I'm not gonna have you raise your hand. I'm not gonna have you look at me or anything like that. I just want you to, I just wanna help you say a prayer. The Lompoc campus, no looking around, just take a moment because the resurrection is not something that happens every Easter. It happened 2000 years ago and the world's changed. One of the strongest cases, he took the Roman symbol of death and destruction, the Roman crucifixion. And now many of you are wearing it around your neck, your neck as a necklace because it now means life. He trades his life for ours and he changed the world and he can change your life. If that's you today, I want you to say this prayer with me in church. Will you help us say this? Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, but you're a good savior. You died for me so I could live for you. The curse of sin is broken and you've spoken life to me. Fill me with your spirit. Put death to death so I can live for you. Jesus, I thank you for every person at both campuses who said that prayer. It's not magical, but if you put your faith in it, it's the powerful way forward. I thank you for everything that you're doing, that the work of the cross is validated because you rose from the dead and you're risen indeed. So let everything we say and everything we do bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?